fate of the world will soon be decided. The dominion of evil grows even stronger. There is a union now between the two towers, Varador, fortress of the Dark Lord Sauron, and Orthanc, stronghold of the wizard Saruman. The peril of the Ringbearer deepens. An unseen danger draws closer. For there is another who hunts the ring. They stole my precious, and we want it. Welcome back to Geek Channel 8. I'm Eric. I'm Johanna. I'm David. I'm Rosie. So I've been watching The Boys with my boyfriend. Love that series. And I, <laughs> I just realized while watching it this time that Aomer is Carl Urban. Yeah, he was Bones on Star Trek. Yeah, he's such a diverse actor, and I didn't even recognize him at first because in The Boys, he has, like, short, dark, spiky hair and facial hair. Yeah, and, and if you remember when we watched Loft, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. there's an American version of Loft, and he's in it as oh, wow. one of the guys in that. I forget which one he plays, but he's one of the guys that. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. He was one of the characters in that. I completely missed that but yeah he plays billy butcher which is one of the main characters in the boys he's like one of those tortured reluctant heroes and um that show is super vulgar but you know if that doesn't bother you and you like superhero stuff this is like marvel or the avengers on steroids so watch it it's really good i just recently finished what i'm calling my trilogy of depression era Law and Lawlessness on streaming, and that was uh, the one-season TV show of Damnation, which was about uh, farmer strikes in Iowa, inspired by true stories, and then two based on true stories, uh, one called Highwayman, about the cops that eventually catch and kill Bonnie and Clyde, and then one called Lawless, about bootleggers and uh, 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 whiskey makers in, in rural Virginia during, during uh, Prohibition, so... I just watched all three of those things, and, and uh, so now I'm full up on my Depression-era era lawlessness. I am going back to the movie theater for the first time in a long while, going to see Rhea and the Last Dragon 
today. I know nothing about the film. I don't actually care. But it's it's finally at the point where I need to be in a dark theater with strangers eating popcorn and Sour Patch Kids, and it does not matter what the pretty lights on the screen are telling me. <laughs> it's It's gotten to be that bad. Just so ready to be back at the movies. I'm glad you bring up Rhea and the Last Dragon because this is my beef of the week. So people are saying that this is the second Disney princess from the Pacific Islands. Some people are saying the first. Some people are saying the second, with the first being... Moana. Moana. However, I disagree. I believe this is the third Pacific Islander Disney princess, because I consider Nani from Lilo and Stitch to be the first. And here's why. One, she's Polynesian, so checks off that box long before Moana. And also, she's literally named after a Hawaiian princess, Liliokalani, who later became the queen. So this is just something that has been bugging me for ages, for years. <laughs> I maintain Nani from Lilo and Stitch is every bit a Disney princess. Well, I'm excited for Rhea only because I've seen all these pictures of like how they animated her hair and the technology for some of the animation is really just getting getting to be out of control. I, I did watch another movie this week, uh, Mitchell versus the Machines, which is produced by Lord and Miller of Spider-Verse fame and Lego movie fame. It is not as good as their other films, but the animation and the creativity and the different kinds of textures, I'm not sure that my son can tell that this is meant to short circuit your brain, but there are aspects of it where it's clearly animated and made up. And then there are other aspects where it looks real. It looks like live action, real textures, but I know intellectually that it's animated because it matches. The further we move into this direction of animation imitating real, real life, it's, it's gonna be crazy <laughs> to see what animation does in the future. Okay, so what have I been watching? I am a child of the 80s, but I saw Dirty Dancing for the first time in my life. How did this happen? I still have never seen it, so... Oh, man, I'm putting both you babies in the corner. <laughs> well, you know, it came out at a time in the 80s when I was very cynical about mainstream 80s culture and make no mistake although this movie is set in the 60s it is so peak 80s uh but what's interesting to me is that you know this thing is super crafted i can appreciate it for how crafted it is it's like more predictable than a rom-com uh, they break into song and dance at a moment's notice but what, what really cracks me up is Jennifer Grey's character, Frances, baby, is um, she's supposed to be clumsy and awkward and whatever. But then there's this dance competition. And when, uh, you know, it's I don't know, uh, it's a summer camp, so I don't know how long they're there for weeks in the summer. And then she has to get ready for this, you know, dance thing in, you know, they show her with, uh, you know, 
it's obviously a body double because like she's got sculpted abs and it's obvious that she has been dancing for her entire life. <laughs> I was just going to say it would be interesting to compare Dirty Dancing's depiction of the summer camps to the more recent Marvelous Mrs. Maisel season where they spent a good part of the season at one of those summer camps and, and see how the depictions of those two have, ch- have, have changed over time. You are so right, David. I'm so glad you brought up the summer sequence in, I guess, that's season two of Maisel's. Oh, my gosh. The so Unitar. hysterical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and the pageantry and everything, yeah. like, which I remember watching Dirty Dancing and thinking, this is all, you know, a setup. This isn't real, you know, like what, you know, this is just what happens in the movies. And then, you know, I don't know if we see see enough of those setups, then maybe maybe I'll be convinced that. You know, I missed out. I missed out on summer camp and the cat skills. Right. <laughs> well, what we're not going to miss out on is the background to the year. Take it, Rosie. This was a very interesting year. Um, Post 9-11, a lot of crazy things were going on in the world. Um, just a great year for movies, which we really needed that after 9-11 and all of the tragedy and, and the change that was pushed forth that year. 2001 to 2002 was a year of kind of a year of recovery you know there were a lot of great entertaining films that came out that year Frida came out that year I love that movie so much of course Lord of the Rings Star Wars episode two Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets it was the start of American Idol which Kelly Clarkson won still has a flourishing career Justin Guarini, who was the runner-up, is now the Mr. Pepper guy. If you've ever seen him on the on the Dr. Pepper commercials, he's the sweet one. So I didn't re- recognize that until I got a good look at him one day, and uh, it kind of threw me off. And this was uh, also an interesting year politically. Um, you know, as we know, we it, there was a lot of talk about the weapons of mass destruction that never found um and uh george w bush gave his famous axes of evil speech jimmy carter was awarded the nobel peace prize um switzerland and east timor joined the un this was the year they started using the euro uh, also the year Kmart filed for bankruptcy um the queen mother died uh, so did queen elizabeth's sister that year queen mother died shortly after that this was the year that we hosted the Olympics at Salt Lake City, Utah. That was actually a lot of fun to watch that year. But I'm just speaking from experience because I watched a lot of television that year. I had a newborn. So I was busy taking care of her and watching a lot of television. That's basically it. So I just, you know, I can't reiterate enough that we really needed movies like The Lord of the Rings, Two Towers to watch after all of the tragedy of 2001. It was a great distraction. Well, you already got ahead of me a little bit because as I said in the last episode, I'm going to try to break out an interesting piece that's specific to each film. So can't talk about Two Towers without talking about Gollum. Andy Serkis was pitched the role originally as a voice acting gig. Uh, just to do the voice of Gollum, but Peter Jackson was so blown away by his vocal audition that he decided to have Circus perform the movements for Gollum as well. Circus drank tons and tons of something he called Gollum juice, which was honey, lemon, and ginger 
to keep his voice in shape. And for the physical movements that were captured using the motion capture technology, which we now see being employed all over cinema. And actually, there's another interesting place in Lord of the Rings where this technology is used. I'll get to that later. Rendering Gollum was actually a real technological feat. Weta Studios would have to have the shots render overnight. And sometimes they would wake up the next day and find that the whole shot had rendered with Gollum's hair sticking straight up like a mohawk or the next day find that his eyes were not actually quite inside his skull or things like that. So it was not a smooth process. I mean, you think that the hardest part would be circus like hunching over and really inhabiting Gollum, but actually rendering the animation of the character was the real feat of magic there. That motion capture technology was also used for the horses, which I didn't think about, but there were about two or three hundred horses used in Lord of the Rings. And often these horses were, you know, performing heroic feats of battle and they didn't want to endanger actual horses. So instead what they did is they suited up the horses and the riders with this same motion capture technology had the horses perform these jumps and and whatnot, and then actually like reanimated them later in the battle scenes doing that, which, you know, I actually don't think I ever looked at the horses close enough to imagine like, is that a real horse or is that an animated horse? But, and now I feel like a terrible person for never thinking about the horse's safety. You know, there's a lot of horses who probably get killed in this film that I ignored and forgot about. But um, I thought that was a really cool bit of trivia. So the other thing you have to talk about when you talk about Two Towers is the Battle of Helm's Deep, which, you know, now that we've gone through and talked about The Hobbit and the epic scale of the Battle of Five Armies, now you know, zooming back and talking about Helm's Deep seems a little bit, you know, backwards, but Helm's Deep was one of the first major army battle scenes that really tested Weta's rendering of these huge scale armies. Apparently there were only actually like a hundred real Urukai actors, and then the rest were dubbed either Uruk Low because they were actually only five feet tall. They weren't the real Urukai, they were extras, or they were animated. There were really only a hundred actors representing that huge, massive army. There were so many extras actually in the Battle of Helm's Deep that they all got t-shirts saying, I survived Helm's Deep. And apparently they run into each other every once in a while in New Zealand and have no idea that that person was there. One of these extras showed up on set wearing an eye patch, um, you know, was a was a veteran, had had lost an eye, and Jackson politely asked to see what was under the eye patch and then politely asked him to perform the role with his bare socket present. So when you take a closer look and you see a one-eyed soldier, um, he's now very proud of uh, having having removed the eye patch and gone through with this, but at the time he was pretty hesitant. So the Battle of Helm's Deep was edited down from 20 hours of footage shot over a four-month period. Three of those months, all of the shots were done at night, and then one month during the day, and most of the night shots done with a massive rain machine battering down on the cast. So if you can imagine 
you know, three months <laughs> of shooting in the dark in the rain for this. It's just incredible. There were 10,000 people doing the battle chants for the Urukai. They uh, managed to capture that sound at a cricket stadium where, you know, there were 25,000 fans there all chanting Durbgu, Nashku, Durbgu, Dashu. And uh, Peter Jackson apparently led the crowd in, in this chant. Little anecdotes like this just remind me, you know, all the crazy things you have to think about when you're putting together a film. Just, you know, the number of moving parts and that one of these parts is Peter Jackson leading a crowd of cricket fans in, in order to record the sounds of war. Another hilarious bit of trivia, um, Edoras, the Rohan city, was filmed in a national park, which they were told by the Land Conservancy in New Zealand that they had to leave in the exact condition in which they found it. So they uprooted all of the plants, took them to a special nursery for 16 months, filmed the shots in Edoras, and then put the plants back. <laughs> Just like, that was someone's job to figure out, okay, how are we going to keep the land safe? Oh, I know, we'll remove all of the plants. I've got a funny story, not quite as extreme as that, but I was working on the second unit of Spider-Man 3. And this is back when you could buy newspapers out of metal boxes on street corners. And my job was to change out the Cleveland Plain Dealer boxes, which was the city we were shooting in, with uh, Daily Bugle boxes, which is the fictional newspaper from the Spider-Man comics. But... The scene is a high-speed chase, uh, basically through the streets. And there's like, the whole chase is like two minutes in the movie. And even then, they're like moving so fast that I don't think you can even see a newspaper box, even if you paused any frame of this, let alone be able to read what it said on the box. <laughs> and the names were facing away from the street, which was where the camera was anyway. But yeah, kind of the lengths to which they go to try to make sure they cover up any possible little thing is crazy. Well, and what's hilarious about that is, you know, back when Spider-Man 3 was made, I imagine... There, like, there were some sequences that were done as special effects with CGI, and then there was stuff that needed to be in the real world. And what's hilarious about your story, Eric, is I just can't imagine that happening in a movie now. Like, they would never have you change out physical newspapers. They would just animate that. They would just, like, draw it in as a different newspaper. So, back in the day, man. <laughs> I, I think the modern equivalent of that would be from the Star Wars movie uh, on the Luke's Lonely Island where all those Porg <laughs> things were actually, um, shoot, what are those Arctic birds? Um, penguins? Not penguins, but the ones that are looks like halfway between penguins and regular birds. Ah, I'm just blanking. Puffins? Puffins, yes, puffins. All those were actually puffins, and they decided that Luke couldn't be on a planet with puffins, so they went, <laughs> they created Porgs to cover the puffins. What? And then gave them their own little storyline. 
David, this is exactly why you're here. <laughs> we need to know these things. Well, and, and I would bring it back to the Lord of the Rings equivalent, which I know our podcast listeners can't see, but is the fact that Arwen was originally at, two at uh, Helm's Deep as well. And then they had to ed edit her out uh, from, the, from the battle at Helm's Deep. And uh, 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 the eagle-eyed geeks, like maybe myself last night, can still find her in a couple faraway shots. Oh man, I missed that. So why did they edit her out? Uh, they decided, I think probably wisely, that uh, you know Arwen replacing Glorfindel and Fellowship of the Ring, which makes many fans, including Eric Matt, I think, uh, is, is one thing. But Arwen showing up uh, at Helm's Deep, being basically the equivalent of Eowyn, uh, was maybe an adaptation a little bit too far. This seems like a good time to talk about Samwise and Frodo also, they being another major part of Two Towers. The part of Frodo was originally auditioned by 200 English actors, but Peter Jackson and Fran Walsh just like watched these 200 English people and only found two that were even okay. And they assumed going into it that they would need to find a British actor because, you know, Tolkien being such an iconic British folklore and the part of Frodo represents the audience and represents the reader and that there was a feeling that that person should probably be a Brit. They didn't find a Brit that they really liked, but Elijah Wood uh, filmed his own audition tape with a friend, you know, created his own Hobbit costume and went up into a tree and, and filmed something. And because Fran had seen him in a previous film, they agreed to take him on. Elijah Wood had, before the audition tape, really worked on the accent, you know, hired a dialect coach and wanted it really badly. And actually, what's kind of funny about a lot of these casting stories is there's a mix of people who were like, I really want that part. Like, you know, Elijah Wood's like, I really want Frodo. And then there are other people like Sean Astin who seem to just be like, I want any part, like shows up and, you know thought he was auditioning for Aragorn. And then halfway through the audition process, it became very clear that he was not up for anything other than Samwise. <laughs> and he was kind of bummed out because he felt like he was being typecast, you know, from all of his work as a child actor, you know, playing these, you know, kind of frumpy teen characters who are the sidekick. And then he's like, oh, damn it. Like, once again, I'm going to be cast as the sidekick. Goonies never say die. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Other fun bit of trivia, Elijah Wood was paid $250,000 as a grand total for the three films. He got a percentage of, of the gross of the films also, as did, you know, a lot of the cast. So it's not like he didn't walk away with anything. But this is stunning. Apparently, Mark Hamill got $650,000 just for A New Hope. So, and that was like 1970s money. So the fact that Elijah Wood, you know, took the part, you know, at 250K to live in New Zealand for 18 months for three whole films is, you know, really shows, A, that he believed in the success of the project and was really willing to take it on for a low starting rate, but also how much value the Lord of the Rings trilogy accrued after the fact because he was able to ask for a million dollars for his very, very brief appearance in The Hobbit. So good for Elijah Wood. 
and I think that's where I'm going to leave leave the production notes for now. I'm sure we'll end up touching on some other things as we as we go on discussing our favorite plot points. But first, I think maybe we need a snack. What what meal is it today or now? Well, we've had breakfast, second breakfast, elevenses, luncheon, afternoon tea. It's now time for dinner. But before we get to that, I want to talk about what we're not having. So, given that Tolkien's Serhal Birmingham was the basis of the Shire, and Serhal is basically known for its bakery, or was, you'd think that we would be doing Lembus at some point in time. Lembus, of course, the elvish bread, but... As near as I can find, that's something akin to hardtack. And if you really want, you can find a homemade hardtack recipe on the internet or just buy a box of saltines. But we need something heartier for dinner. Instead of the nostalgic place of Tolkien's youth, I want to go back to my youth, where I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. So when I was a kid, my parents took me to the house of Marion Rombar Becker. My father was on the board of the Contemporary Arts Center, which originally had been known as the Modern Arts Society of Cincinnati, and Marion Rombar Becker was the first director of that. She was an illustrator herself. She was known for authoring and illustrating books on uh, wildflowers and plants. She was the first woman that was named the, a great living Cincinnatian. This woman had the biggest kitchen I have ever seen. It turns out that she was the author of The Joy of Cooking. So I've always been a bit of a fan of The Joy of Cooking. Not the modern Joy of Cooking, which was revised after her death, but the original Joy of Cooking, which has such things as opossum and skunk in it. And there's a whole section about small game. Why are we talking about game? Because we're having, for dinner, a brace of conies. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. To dress rabbit or hare, sever the front legs at the joint. And of course, there's a diagram for all this. Cut through the skin around the hind legs the same way. Tie the feet together securely. Hang the rabbit on a hook where tied from the dotted line. Pull the skin off the legs toward the hind feet, stripping it inside out like a glove. Then pull the remaining skin over the body and forelegs. Sever the head and discard it with the skin. Slit the rabbit down the front. Remove the entrails and discard them except for the heart and liver. Wash the carcass inside and out with acidulated water, water which has uh, basically one or two tablespoons of vinegar, um, and then rinse and dry carefully. Rabber hair can be cooked by any recipe calling for chicken, especially highly seasoned dishes like curries, or use any of the following recipes, and there are a whole bunch of them. The one that we're looking at is roast rabbit or hare. Basically, you preheat your oven to 450 degrees, you skin and clean a young rabbit or hare, or in this case, two of them, since it's a brace of conies. Stuff it with any recipe suitable for fowl, 
adding the sautéed chopped liver. Close the opening and truss it. Brush the rabbit with melted butter or vegetable oil. Dredge with seasoned flour. Place on a rack on its side in a roasting pan in the oven. Reduce the heat to 350 degrees. Baste every 15 minutes with the drippings in the pan or, if necessary, with additional butter. Turn the rabbit when cooking time is about half over. Cook until tender about one and a half hours. Then make some pan gravy and serve with grated fresh horseradish and boiled taters. Follow me, potatoes. And be sure to save one potato for supper. We'll talk about that later. Well, Eric, first I was going to say, I think our listening audience is going to be very disappointed that you didn't reveal the secrets of Aowen stew because that looked mighty tasty. So I, I wanted to learn how to cook that. So, um, well, my, just following up on something I said from Fellowship of the Ring um, about how in the books, uh, Aragorn and Frodo are sort of the action protagonists, but not the emotional protagonists. Um, and, and Jackson, I think, makes the smart adaptation decision to, to make Frodo and Aragorn go through an emotional journey as well. And you really see that paying off here in Two Towers where, uh, you know, Theoden's giving Aragorn a little bit of a lesson on, hey, you know, if you want to be king, you got to be taking care of your guys and, and, you know, being a better leader here. And, you know, and Frodo's realizing that uh, uh, he's seeing his own future in Gollum and that uh, he has to be able to save Gollum in order to, to have some hope for himself, uh, what, what little hope he has. Uh, and, and Sam doesn't realize that yet. So you're seeing this payoff uh, about making Frodo and Aragorn go through an emotional journey in the movies that they actually don't go through uh, in the books. They, you know, Aragorn has decided he wants to become king of Gondor or die trying, and he doesn't really go through this uh, questioning period. Uh, so I, I like that ap- adaptation for the uh, for Two Towers to kind of build on that uh, story building for those two characters. Um, Two Towers is it's a problem book to adapt because you have two very different stories and, and actually it breaks down into even smaller stories and they're on completely different timelines. For instance, I looked it up in the handy dandy tale of the years in the appendices and where this movie ends on the Aragorn and um, uh, the war story, uh, Aragorn and Gandalf and Merry and Pippin, where it ends for them uh, Sam and Sam and Frodo are just then getting towards the, the Black Gates of Mordor. So the time displacement here in the books is difficult to, to adapt, and I think Jackson does a pretty good job uh, of, of handling that, that matter. Um, you also have the matter of where does, it, where does the Two Towers begin and where does the Two Towers end? And if you look at the book, the book is 21 chapters long, uh, but I think, um, depending on, on how you count these up, uh, there's eight chapters that uh, are not covered in, in the movie. One chapter is kind of covered at the end of Fellowship of the Ring, and about seven chapters are left to handle in Return of the King, which is why Return of the King gets longer and longer and longer. Um, so, so it's really just kind of, uh, you know, I don't know, two-thirds of, of uh, Two Towers that is showing up in the movie. Uh, two tower, two-thirds of the Two Towers of the book is showing up in the movie. Uh, and I listened to a little bit of the um, the uh, directors and producers' commentary about this, and and they were saying they really wanted the movie to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. 
and if you if you made the book as the book it, it really wouldn't have that but they wanted the movie to stand on its own and I, I think that's fair uh, but then I, I think the the consequences of that is you've left a lot to do in Return of the King to catch back up with with a with a text okay with all this disparate plot what ties this together as one film the whole reoccurring theme of the movie was hope you know this this was the movie that put the beginning and the end together and so you know sometimes like the second part in a trilogy can be like just the waiting you know just the waiting for all this crap to be over with so we can get to the end but that wasn't one of those movies to me because i mean obviously i picked the lord of the rings so i love this series um it, but just the constant theme of hope, you know, every time we thought that this was the end, this was a tragedy, they couldn't get through it, whatever the situation was, somehow things pulled together and they got through it and, you know, bringing more hope every single time from beginning to end. And um, I also love the, you know, the environmental theme of the movie, which was appropriate for that period of time. You know, I mean, even back then we were screaming like, come on, we got to do something about the environment, you know, or it's going to be too late. And, you know, here is Saruman trying to ruin the earth, basically, with evil and destruction, wiping the earth from man and nature and uh, trying to make it this industrial underworld. The old world will burn in the fires of industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had that line written down too. Of that line seems to define not just this film, but actually like what the good versus evil battle is. That it's you know the good old world of the, and I could like go on and on about the English country house strain of literature that the that Hobbiton is based around. This erasure of labor in favor of this like peaceful abundant kind of lifestyle where no one does really a lot of work but there still seems to be plenty of everything for everybody um that version of prosperity that maybe actually doesn't exist anywhere except in the english imagination versus industry which is you know directly opposed to this nostalgic idea of of what english life was like pre-industrial revolution so it's I think that's what Lord of the Rings is in addition to being about war a lot of it is about this uh, and that Tolkien would have been living through a lot of the consequences of this industrialization and that he probably grew up hearing stories about like early you know 19th century or late 18th century Britain and what folks thought that was like relative to to turn of the century, you know, industrialized Britain. Anyway, sorry, that was a very long rant. <laughs> well, and, and I would just agree with you and say that, you know, Tolkien himself talks about uh, his experience of being in World War I, perhaps arguably the first technological war, and how soldiers were no longer men, no longer humans. They were treated as machines and they were fighting machines. And so uh, I, I definitely think this is a reaction to this and a reaction to what he sees happening in his beloved English countryside as well as, as he's uh, going through middle age and, and, and older. Um, I, I would also you know, do a deep dive into Tolkien geekdom and point out that both Saruman and Sauron 
were students, were accolades, were assistants to the god of technology in Middle-earth. Uh, and, and it seems like um, in, in a lot of Tolkien's writings, not just in Lord of the Rings, it's, it's, uh, uh, these, it's people that start out with good ideas, oh, we're going to use our technology for good, you know, this is going to be a good idea, but then it just goes off the rails at some point. Uh, and so that's a very common theme in Tolkien's writings. And it's interesting to think that the villains in Lord of the Rings, in, in Tolkien's mind, were both students of the god of technology. Okay, so let's talk about for a second, who were these men that were allied with Saruman? They seem, I don't know, a lot like Celtic tribesmen. So in uh, this area of Middle-earth, uh, going back to the Second Age, uh, this this was populated with um, uh, I don't want to say Middle Earth indigenous people uh, who are maybe more rustic than the Numenorians or the or even the Rohirrim, and so they have been somewhat displaced first by Gondor and then second by Rohan, and have been pushed farther and farther and farther to the edges of the mountains and edges of society, and every now and then they would rebel against either Gondor or Rohan and uh, try and reclaim some of their land. And so, uh, you know, when you put it that way, it's sort of like, oh, maybe we should be rooting for them. Uh, but so, <laughs> so, it, so it's these original residents of that area of Middle Earth that have been displaced by these, you know, uh, more good looking, <laughs> good looking uh, peoples uh, with, with bigger swords uh, that are aligning themselves with, uh, with Saruman. Okay, so if the, uh indigenous people are kind of like the Celts, then can we say, can we say the Rohirrim are kind of like the Saxons? Definitely. And, and linguistically, you know, the little bits of Rohirrim language we get are very much Old English-y, uh, more so than the Elvish languages that are more like Greek and Latin. Uh, so I, I definitely think Tolkien has that in mind uh, when writing about them and their whole culture, actually. Side note, uh, production note about the Rohirrim. Um, for for the film they actually had a lot of the rohirrim portrayed by women wearing beards because it was you know unreasonable to find that many men who could ride horses so a lot of a lot of the rohirrim are actually ladies with beards so some some more women in the film i was just so excited when i read that or indigenous new zealanders wearing blonde wigs too so they, they tried to get yeah. everybody <laughs> One of the things that I really like about Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy and a lot of the fans, basically geeks, like about the Lord of the Rings is how faithful it is in adapting Tolkien's novels. But over the years since I've been rewatching this trilogy or six-part series, if you count the Hobbit films, is... Uh, I kind of think that maybe a little more adaptation would have served this series better in, you know, had it been envisioned that way. For example, Grimma, Wormtongue, appears in this, and it seems like some of his role is expanded drawing on uh, Tolkien's unfinished tales. Well, instead of being a flashback, Actually having it in sequence in the Fellowship of the Ring, you know, prior to Gandalf even arriving in Hobbiton, we see 
these events are already being set in motion in Rohan, which would give the whole series kind of a more epic feel, in my opinion. And Joanna might have the same thing to say. My understanding is that when they originally wrote a screenplay for two movies, which then they expanded out to three, uh, that they introduced what's going on in Rohan very early on in the first movie uh, when, when it was adapted for two movies. That was not what I was going to chime in to say. I was I was going to make a counter argument that you have to start in Hobbiton because if you are coming to this as a new story, you're like Frodo's your dude. Like you're learning things at the same rate that Frodo is learning them. So I think cinematically it would be very difficult to to make you feel this kind of slow like understanding of the stakes involved and how big this quest is going to be if instead of taking Frodo's point of view in the story you are taking a bird's eye view of the story like I think like we geeks want to like oh I can see all the chess pieces moving but I think narratively it doesn't work I think it can work depending on how big your story is going to be. I mean, that's what Game of Thrones was. Game of Thrones was constantly switching points of view between this character over here and then this character over in another part of the world. Um, But yeah, I think that they started to do that with these movies. And by the time they get to the Hobbit movies, they're doing it all the time. I I, I would throw out that, you know, the book is very much, and Tolkien even discusses this, um, very much from the Hobbit point of view, with a little bit from Gimli's point of view when nobody else is there to, to witness it, uh, Hobbit-wise. And Tolkien actually saw that as a limitation of his writing, but a necessary limitation of his writing. But uh, Jackson talks about how he is able to provide more of a bird's-eye view of what's going on, but clearly he's making choices. He's not pulling out and showing everything all at one time. Uh, he's trying to stay true to the books, but also build in a little bit of that bird's-eye point of view. Also, if, if it was the two-movie version, uh, it would have ended in Rohan very much like the uh, Bashki version. So introducing Rohan at the beginning of that movie to end at that movie would have made sense there. But it's curious to know why they didn't give more of that backstory earlier, except I know they really wanted to get the Fellowship of the Ring to have the Fellowship of the Ring as soon as possible. <laughs> Just to chime in, since we're talking about the Hobbit point of view... One of the things I really like about Two Towers is how Merry and Pippin suddenly become actual characters. Like in Fellowship, they're, you know, this charming sideshow, but like really of no importance that, you know, they're just kind of like the R2 and 3PO or whatever of, of the group. And then suddenly in Two Towers, we're much more in, emotionally invested in their well-being and also in their ability to, you know, move the story forward and also get into trouble. Like, you know, there's just like more, so much more going on with Merry and Pippin than you expect based on Fellowship of the Ring. Um, And particularly this, you know, one of the scenes that I think is so well done is when Aragorn is reading the tracks and reconstructing what happened. Uh, And that this, you know, starting with this feeling of, devastated like oh we just missed it you know like they're dead and we we were just behind them and they were killed by other good people which sucks even more (laughs) like just like that depth of feeling and then transitioning into like oh no wait we're gonna find them actually like it seems very well done 
One of my favorite parts of the book and the movie is the scene where they're crossing the dead marshes. It's super eerie, and it actually was kind of reminiscent of the way I've often heard World War I battlefields described in the aftermath of a battle. Oh, yeah. Did anyone else get that vibe, or is it just me? Yeah, that scene always gives me chills every time I watch that scene straight up like the first I remember the first time I saw that and seeing the faces under the water it took me aback for a moment because like oh I don't know if I can watch this uh, you know but I pushed myself through it and now every time I watch it it still it still gives me chills I mean just basically a graveyard an underwater graveyard this this is the one of those instances where you know Tolkien always said that oh don't read too much into it, lord of the rings it's not world war ii it's not world war one but this is one instance where he says the dead marshes are taken directly from bodies he saw laying in pools of water in trench warfare in world war one so this is directly pulled from tolkien's experience in world war one okay so they're in fanghorn forest and gandalf pops back up and he is now no longer Gandalf the Grey, but Gandalf the White. Although my recollection was, and this is going way, way back now, it's been decades and decades, but my recollection was that the name he actually went by was Gandalf Graham the White Rider. Uh, am I remembering that correctly? You know, I'd have to look at the books. I, I just remember that he had many, many names. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and he w would be slow to reveal that he had been reborn as Gandalf the White. So he had that gray cloak, uh, which was from Galadriel, by the way. The, he was first uh, dropped in in Lorien to get clothes and stuff. But uh, I, I just remember him as being Gandalf the White as soon as he revealed himself to whoever he was revealing himself to be Gandalf the White. He wouldn't necessarily come into Rohan and be like, hey, I'm Gandalf the White now. But I, I always remembered him as Gandalf the White once he was so revealed. But I might have that wrong too. So side note about Gandalf. I have in my notes here, is Gandalf 15,000 years old? Like I, there's some like comment where he says like, I've lived, you know, 300 lifetimes of, of whatever. And I did the math. I'm like, he's 15,000 years old. Is that, is that my math? Okay. I don't know if that's the case. I do remember that generally in fantasy stories, we think of wizards as being men who've mastered magic, but in this case, Tolkien says that wizards are not men. They predate men. Tolkien's cosmology is that being a good Catholic, there's there's one God, right? There's one All-Father. Uh, but then un, the first thing uh, that God creates is angels. He calls them something different, but they're basically angels. And there are two levels of power of angels. Fewer number of very powerful angels, uh, which are equivalent to our Norse or, or Greek or Roman gods in, in human mythology. And then there's a, kind of a secondary tier of more numerous angels. And Gandalf and Saruman and Sauron and the Balrogs are all the second tier of angels sent to Earth to either uh, help build or, or help destroy the Earth, depending on if you're good or evil. And um, when, when the, the more powerful gods, the more powerful angels, 
decided that they needed to send emissaries to help, they picked out five of these second tier angels to go to Middle Earth to try and help defeat Sauron. Uh, but they, they put them in somewhat of an aged human form and depowered them so they don't have access to their full power as angelic beings. And, and uh, they sent them to Middle Earth. And, but Gandalf in that form had probably been in Middle Earth for some hundreds if not a couple thousand years. Um, but he, his spirit, his angelic spirit would predate the earth itself. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> as long as we're on the subject of ages, how the hell old is Aragorn? Like, did the Dunedain have elvish blood? 87. 87 was what they said. Oh man, that's young. So, <laughs> man, you're just asking me all this, I'm getting into all the super geeky stuff. So at the end of the first age, when Morgoth, who was the more powerful evil angel, the, uh, um, is defeated ultimately, um, there are two children who are through two different sides of their family, basically half-elves. And the gods say to them, hey, you're both half-elves, we don't know what to do with you. You can either choose to be a man or, or a human or choose to be an elf. And one of them chooses to be an elf, and that's Elrond. And one of them chooses to be a human, and that's his brother uh, Elros. And uh, they're like, okay, you choose to be human. We're going to bless you with long life. I think he lived to be over 500 years old. And your children are going to be blessed with long life, but still mortal life, but long. And we're going to make you the first king of Numenor. Uh, and so uh, ultimately Aragorn through, I think I've counted it once to be around 130 generations, but somebody out there will correct me, plus or minus five. Um, Aragorn is 130 plus or minus five generations removed from Elrond's brother. Uh, and, and all of Elros's descendants had uh, long life. Okay, well... <laughs> Since we don't have the Ask a 12-Year-Old Boy feature this week, I'm going to think back to when I was 12 years old. One of the great unanswered questions of Tolkien that we used to debate as 12-year-olds playing Dungeons & Dragons, Woo! what do the Nazgul ride? What are these winged creatures? We came to the de decision that they are wyverns. But officially, what do the Nazgul ride? Fell beasts. <laughs> there's there's never a good description of them other than what they look like i would say the movie version are slightly more muscular than what tolkien describes but uh they they are not equivalent to anything that we any place else so fell beasts and on the subject of riding here's my nitpick about horses <laughs> Can we just take that quote out of context and just insert that into several other podcasts? Here's my nitpick about horses. There's a scene where they all like enter Fanghorn Forest and they leave the horses behind. And then they go all these miles through the forest and stuff like that. And they come out on the other side of the forest. And then like, there's their horses waiting for them, you know? Like, yeah, like, <laughs> like, if it was that quick, why didn't they just stay on the horses and ride around? Like, because the horses obviously did, you know? Uh, right. <laughs> I, yeah, that, that part didn't make sense to me either. I, it, for me too, it's been a little, a little while since reading Two Towers, but A, I believe that they come out near where they went in, and A, and B, 
I believe there's some some mention of like they went to hang out with Shadowfax because he's the Lord of all horses. So when you called Shadowfax, you know the rest weren't far behind. Yeah, I'm gonna go with Lord of All Horses as as the answer, which you know, again, like in the same kind of like magical aura that some of the weapons have. I love that Shadowfax has this like you know whole moment of glory of like we're just gonna worship this horse for for a few seconds here, and and that's part of what what Lord of the Rings is is just like reverence all over the place. <laughs> and another thing. I can't believe I'm actually going to quote from Boromir here, but one does not simply walk into Mordor. Like, he says that way back at the beginning of this, and they spend weeks and months on the road traveling, and in all that time, they get all the way to the gates of Barad-dûr with, like, no plan to get in. (laughs) What the hell? Like, you'd think somewhere along the way they would stop and think, um, how are we going to get in this place? I, I have posted this on Facebook. I have screamed it at the screen. Uh, whenever they're like, oh, they're going to Kirithungal. I'm like, Gandalf, why didn't you ever tell them your plan? How are you going to get into Mordor? <laughs> or, you know, when Faramir is like, you know, Gollum, you better not be taking them astray. You know, I want Gollum to say, well, where do you want to take them? You know, they got to get into Mordor. What's your pathway, Faramir? Uh, but we, we never know what is a good pathway into Mordor. You know, we know that both um, Aragorn and Gandalf have been in Mordor. But apparently they never told anybody their secret way into Mordor, which is a, you know, bit of an issue, I think. I'm, I'm sure the giant eagles were involved. <laughs> no, they can't go into Mordor. Isn't that part of their thing? Like, the eagles don't go to Mordor? I think part of their thing is they try not to involve themselves in all the little details. And that they would instantly be shot down if, if, uh, uh, if they uh, try to incursion into Mordor at that point in the story, so... There's another flashback here, basically the parting of Boromir and Faramir in Gondor. This is another scene I think would be really awesome to see in sequence. So sort of the prologue to the Fellowship of the Ring film, it opens Gondor. There's this, we see events are in motion and then, you know, credits. And then we go to the quiet village of Hobbiton you know, I'm just not hugely big on flashbacks if you don't have to have them as flashbacks. Well, maybe we'll see that in the TV show. I mean, maybe maybe that's why Amazon's remaking it, because they'll remake it in chronological order and not necessarily in, like, character arc order. I, I will say my understanding is that naming the TV show Lord of the Rings is a little bit of a misnomer. Because it's actually going to be about the Second Age and Numenor. And like a younger Galadriel during the Second Age and, and things like that. So I don't think we're seeing Lord of the Rings remade. We're seeing... Well, that's good news. Sort of like Lord of the Rings Phantom Menace. Oh. <laughs> David, no, you've cursed it! <laughs> Sar- Sauron is going to be played by Jake Lloyd. Uh, yeah. You know what the Lord of the Rings needs? It just needs... Bad CGI and Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> now I forget what the actual question was because I, I I had something to say about that. Oh, the flashback. 
Uh, my my response to that is, while it's not exactly as depicted in the movie, there is a little bit of why Boromir left Gondor in the Council of Elrond in the books. Uh, that's where the similar scene is in the books, is in the Council of Elrond. I would say the important thing isn't showing what's happening in Gondor at the beginning of all this. What's important is setting up why would, and, and this is something that's in the extended but not in the theatrical, why would Faramir act not like Faramir and want to get the ring to his father? It's less of a setup of Gondor and more of a setup of Faramir's more motivations. So to me, it fits in to this the story within the movie Two Towers. Okay, nitpicks aside, one of the things that I thought was really well done was the Battle of Helm's Deep. Now, obviously, everyone does things differently, and had I directed it, you know, I remember reading this vividly, and the impression I got when I read it was, you know, of a place that was like, it was raining, and it was pitch black, and then there would be flashes of lightning, and then in between each flash of lightning, this goblin army is closer and closer and closer uh, until they're right at the walls. That's kind of the way that I would have done it. Pitch blackness between flashes of lightning and seeing the armies closer every time there's another lightning flash. I, I agree. I think that would be really great. It probably doesn't happen in this version because you have that elf army show up, uh, and which isn't in the books, and there's reasons for the elf army to show up. You know, you have all this buildup, then the elf army shows up, then you have a little bit more buildup. So it's possible they just didn't want to have you building up for one whole hour of the movie, but maybe that would have been cool too. I don't know. This is one of the things I remember most about the book, because if you think that watching a battle scene in a movie is monotonous, reading a battle scene described over the length of a very long novel, if it's done badly, would be very, very tedious. But one of the things Tolkien does to describe the battle without having to like say the same kind of thing over and over again is this fun interplay between Legolas and Gimli keeping score. It gives you a reference for how much killing is happening and how they're killing them while keeping it kind of like fresh and moving forward so that it doesn't feel like more and more of the same. It's like, oh, the 67th kill was different than the 51st kill or whatever. Like it, it feels new and, and like there's something to follow more than just carnage. And I think they do a good job of rendering it in the film, but in the book, I remember it being the thing that made the two towers like different from other kinds of war books or battles that I had read before. This is both a very serious battle in which the fate of all mankind seems to hang in the balance. And then also like, it's fun. It's these buddies, like, it's a game, you know, and both of those things at once. And, and I would say in the book, Legolas and Gimli get separated for a big chunk of the night. So then that's the first time where you kind of are like, oh no, these two people are just becoming friends and now they're separated. What's going to happen to them? So there's that kind of suspense that's built into that because you've gotten invested in, the story, in their stories in the battle as well. Only other thing I want to mention about Two Towers is the subplot with Eowyn. And I know we're going to come back and talk about her more in Return of the King. One of the things I don't remember from the books, and I'm hoping, David, you can chime in here, is the uh, the rape undertone of, like, 
what's going on with Grima Wormtongue being like, Saruman promised me your sister. And then like, they're left alone in a room and she's like, you know, I would never be with you in a thousand years or whatever. And I, I don't remember that from the book and maybe it's because I was 11, but you know, I don't remember it from the book and it feels so out of place and so gross in, and like, I'm not saying not that it's not well done. Like it's very well done because it feels so gross, but it's like, there's nothing else that happens in Lord of the Rings that's like this scene. So, you know, it's like, I'm sort of torn between like, okay, I'm glad that it's in there because it does kind of reflect a major feature of life in the Middle Ages for women. <laughs> like the threat of rape was constant. The threat of not being married off to someone that you don't want to marry is like a real feature of being a woman at that time period. But at the same time, considering that Eowyn is like only one of a handful of named female characters, the fact that this is another thing that she has to deal with, I found unfortunate and bothersome and like, I don't know how to feel about it. David, is this something in the books? Well, and again, man, I should have reread the books more recently. Um, not as overt as in the movies, but my memory from the book is that absolutely Grima thinks that he is going to be given lordship over Rohan. He's going to be the new king of Rohan when it's all said and done. And I have a vague memory of him hoping that Eowyn would be his queen. Now, that could be my brain filling in from the movie. That might not be in the book. But there is definitely nothing quite as creepy as as what's in the movie. Uh, if it is if it is in there, it's just sort of like a, you know, yeah, I'm going to be the new Lord of Rohan. And, you know, uh, I, I would be able to uh, have Eowyn as my queen. But not the creepy stares and the uh, Eomar threatening him to leave his sister alone and all that kind of stuff. That That's not in the book. All right, good. Because I was, I was like, I don't remember this. Um, but we'll talk about Eowyn more in, in Return of the King. Also, another thing that kind of didn't make sense to me was the relationship between Aragorn and Eowyn. It was like she was hoping that they would have some sort of a romantic connection. But the whole time, I mean, he was, he was really thinking about Arwen. And Arwen basically saved his life after he fell off the cliff. That whole part of the storyline kind of didn't make sense like i feel like they could have saved some time in the movie if they would have just cut that out because it didn't go anywhere it didn't really serve a purpose in the movie to me i think that that everybody like the hardcore fans wanted it though because that's actually a thing in mm -hmm. the books you know it's it's like you know he's got the uh hot elvish chick and then he's got this human side piece, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. She is constantly trying to get Aragorn's attention in the book. But again, in the book, Aragorn has decided, I'm going to become king of Gondor, marry Arwen, or die trying. So he's always putting her in the friend zone where in the book. Whereas in the movie, for a few minutes, he's sort of like, yeah, you know, I could end up with Eowyn. Uh, until finally he's, you know, finally he decides that no, I, I have to do this thing. But uh, so there's there's a little bit more back and forth with Aragorn, and Ar it's more of a two way flirt uh, in the movie than it is in the books. While my huge nitpick with this movie is the Aragorn fake death, um, but my not huge nitpick with this movie is Arwen. You know, Tolkien himself says that Arwen's sacrifice is as large as Frodo's sacrifice 
and he just wasn't able to show that in the text. To make up for that, he wrote this tale of Aragorn and Arwen that shows up in the appendices of the books. And what Jackson has done, is, all the emotions, all the ins and outs, all the will they or won't they's, is there in the tale of Aragorn and Arwen. It's spread out before Lord of the Rings starts, but Jackson has taken those ideas and compressed them in time to take place during Lord of the Rings. So uh, I think that is a fair adaptation of, of building up Arwen's character. So it's not just like, oh, out of the sudden, this woman we've only met very briefly is now queen, but also to uh, fill out Aragorn's character a little bit more, his emotional journey, show other aspects of what was going on that Tolkien wasn't able to show with his Hobbit-only point of view. So it, it, it's there in the books. It's just that Jackson is lifting it and time-compressing it into the time period of Lord of the Rings. So I, I give a thumbs up to um, the Arwen arc in, in, this, in these movies. Okay, David was particularly impressed with the Arwen story arc. Was there anything in this movie that Rosie and Johanna you were particularly impressed by? Uh, one thing I was really impressed by, just you know, from watching it when the movie came out and watching it now, 20 years later, was the transformation of King Theoden. That really kind of stood up, stood to the test of time. Like it, it stood up to it. Oftentimes when you watch things from 20 years ago and computer generation from then, it's, I mean, it's obviously not as good as now because technology has just come a long way. But that scene right there was still legit. I was yeah. impressed that it, it it still held true. Like I, I watched it closely. I watched for glitches and, and things like that or sharp movements. Some, some those little things that you catch that you can tell it's like, this is computer generated, but I didn't see any of that. That was clean. It was beautiful. So remind everybody what, uh, what happens in that scene. King Theoden was under a curse. He was under a curse by Grima Wormton. And Gandalf the White, you know, eventually he shows up to his castle, calls Grandma out for who he is, pulls the curse off of the king, and then the king makes his transformation back to himself again. And uh, it's a very powerful scene. And, you know, one thing about that scene I want to mention is after he makes his transformation, the king wants to kill him. And Aragorn stops him and says, don't, enough blood has been spilt, just let him go. And lets him go. Yeah, which I kind of didn't like that because all he did was go back to Saruman and be like, yeah, they're going to go to the home deep. So, yeah, just attack yeah. that place. Have fun with it. Yeah. <laughs> they so they killed him. They would have saved their whole of, lives. <laughs> there are a lot of times in the Lord of the Rings where Tolkien wants them to choose mercy. It happens with Gollum all the time. Oh, my know? gosh. Yes. But uh, it always comes back to bite them because like the 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 person always betrays them again you know it's like well you know if we had just killed them the first time we wouldn't be in this mess you know oh i know yeah just like the whole time they're on this trip and samwise is constantly you know telling frodo no don't trust him he's trying to kill you he's trying to take the ring he tells him that over and over and over again and as the movie goes on frodo is more merciful towards Gollum. But, you know, I don't want to do any spoilers for The Return of the King, but basically, I guess Tolkien would say, you know, there's God's plan. There's God, God has a bigger plan. And so 
Gollum fits into this somehow that we don't know yet. So we, you right. know, we're going to keep him alive, even though he's trying to kill us. Yeah, he's like a necessary evil. They have to keep him alive so they can get where they need to go. But at the same time, they have to sleep with one eye open to make sure that he doesn't kill them and try to take the ring. Johanna, what about you? Any scenes that particularly impressed you in The Two Towers? My last thought is one of the lines of the film that when when I saw it again, I was like, oh yeah, I remember this moment. When Gandalf says, you know, that he's arrived here at the turn of the tide. And I don't know whether it's the sound of Ian McKellen's incredible voice saying those words, but that sense of the two towers has always stuck with me. This kind of feeling like this is a moment where big things are shifting in some direction. But the more I think about it, you know, the more I wonder, like, is this a turn of the tide when the good forces are going to push back evil that has been slowly encroaching over thousands of years? Or is it the other way, like the Empire Strikes Back way of like good has has had it peaceful for a while and now evil is finally making their push and good has to you know, stand firm as, as it becomes high tide. Um, so I, you know, I've been thinking about like, what is this turn of the tide? Um, but that line in particular hangs with me. One thing we have to talk about before we end this is the title itself, the two towers. We had spent a bunch of time in this podcast and the last podcast talking about how these films came in the wake of 9-11. Famously in 9-11, two towers were destroyed. Does anyone remember if that played into the news at all surrounding the release of this film? I know that there was press where Jackson addressed that and said they thought about changing it, but uh, in the end they thought that A, you had to stay true to the books to some extent and that B that would have given power to the terrorist attack, you know? Uh, so I remember that being addressed in the pre-press why they decided not to change it. I don't remember any disclaimer in the film itself. I'll, I'll, th I'll throw an extra geeky about that. Of course, two towers isn't the original title of the book. Tolkien either envisioned this as one long book or six smaller books. And when the publisher said, no, let's put together the, the six books into three, uh, two books each, then Tolkien was like, well, what do I title this, this middle one? And uh, <laughs> he just sort of came, I guess, two towers. Uh, so uh, that, that's kind of an interesting aside to the title as well. And I guess we should clarify that the two towers being referred to here are Orthanc and Kirith Ungol. In the book, Yes. In, in this movie, we don't get to Kirith Ungol. So. <laughs> <laughs> and besides Kirith Ungol, there's plenty of other places we won't be able to get to in this podcast. So be sure to join us next time when we cover The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King from 2003. Like and subscribe on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. Give us a good review and rating. You can always write to us at GC8podcast. That's letter G, letter C, number eight, podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie. This is Johanna. And this is David. Signing off.
well, he's not coming back. And even if he does come back and you stay together, he's going to grow old and die and you're just going to be alone forever. So you might as well just come over with us and be heartbroken forever instead. <laughs> Great choices, dad. <laughs>